Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, we're going to have a real light, airy subject matter tonight, the book of Revelation. So I definitely need to pray before we get going, and then we'll get after this thing. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this place to meet. Thank you that every single one of us could come to church tonight without fear of being hurt or of being punished or being singled out. God, we live in a world today where there were people who had to make choices whether to live, uh, continue to live in this world or confess you and die, and they did. They chose you. And uh, you're, you're blessing them even in the midst of all of this. So I thank you for the privileges we have in this country, and I pray that we would uh, be able to be focused and aware and listen to what your words uh, in scriptures have to say so that we can live our lives in a very meaningful way. God, we love you, and we thank you for the freedom we have, and we also pray for those that are under persecution. And we pray for those who are making life decisions based on their faith. And we pray for those that are facing physical dilemmas and surgeries and treatments that come their way, that they may trust you and that you may reveal yourself to them in the midst of all of it, that they'll know when it's done that you were there. I just pray for those that are just struggling. They're tired, they're weary, and uh, inside they just want to quit. I pray that you'll strengthen them by your spirit and give them the ability to understand that Jesus is the victor. He is the overcomer of all things. And even when it's hard, he promises he can do that for us. So tonight as we study uh, the revelation that John received, I just pray that you'll uh, allow us to leave here encouraged and uh, instructed and inspired. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, <clears throat> talk about now, there's a couple things that we need to be real adamant about from the very beginning when we start this. Sorry, Brad, am I in the... Um, it is the revelation, singular, of John. If this were an academic course, I'd charge you $5 every time you said revelations. Now, you may think that that's just syntax, grammar, but it's not. Uh, it is the one revelation with a circular vision that's going on. Every one of those visions builds together, but it's one revelation. It's not multiple revelations where you can pick your favorite and build a theology from it. It's crucial. There are so many books written on Revelation. I'm not standing up here saying I'm smarter than all of them, but you can see through some that have taken two or three of chapters of the entire Revelation and decided they're going to build all their theology on those things. Uh, you can hear it on Christian broadcasting every day. You can hear just by the way they talk about the kingdom of God, what they believe the Revelation is all about. So I want us to be very, very careful, not arrogant, but we are to measure teachers. We're not just to blindly believe anything. We're supposed to go back to the scriptures and look at it for ourselves and measure it up against what we know the scriptures to teach. So we're going to hope to do a little bit of that tonight. This is a very popular book. Uh, I know whenever I've been leading a Bible study and I've asked people what they want to study, there'll be a quiet for 30 seconds and then someone will say, Revelation. If it's a junior high group of boys, they'll say Song of Solomon. You can guarantee those two things. If it's a normal adult group of people, everyone suspects, I don't know, you just pick something. Uh, the Revelation is very, if you'll pardon the expression, it's a very sexy book in our day and age because everybody's looking for the, the formula to figure out how this is all going to end. And I'll tell you how it's all going to end. Jesus wins, 
those who aren't with him lose. That, we can go home now. That's what Revelation wants you to understand. Jesus is in charge. Jesus will win, even when it looks like at moments during John's vision that the kingdom of God is being defeated. It'll never be defeated. It'll never fail. And so with that, we have some inspiration. So let's talk about Revelation. Who wrote it? The Apostle John. Remember we talked uh, a couple weeks ago that James, his brother, was the first to die for the cause, and John would be the last disciple, the apostle, to die for the cause. And in the midst of all that, this is the tail end of John's life. Uh, What's it about? It is a vision God gave him to encourage the church. A vision God gave him to encourage the church. Where was it written? On an an island called Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S. Many of you are aware of this. This was an island uh, that the uh, Romans and others used to put criminals there to keep them. It would be the equivalent of an Alcatraz, if you're familiar with that on the West Coast. When was this written? It was written about about 90 A.D. So let's do some of the math we have in front of us. Okay, 90 A.D. Last week we calculated about what period of time did Jesus die. Okay. I heard 33, 28. Okay, why, why if, if he lived 33 years, why would we say he, wasn't, he didn't die in 33 A.D.? That would just, simple math would say that's the case. Do you remember what the case, what the difference was? Bad calendars. Our calendars still aren't perfect. That's why we have to have a leap year every four years, try to even things out and buy us back some time. So we're calculating Jesus died somewhere between 28 and 29 A.D. And so this book was written 61, 62 years later. Pretty amazing. Now, if John was a man at when Jesus was here, then how old is he at this point? Well, he's probably 90 years old plus. So that he wasn't a kid, he wasn't 15 years old, and he was with Jesus. If you do the simple math, he had 62 to whatever you guess him to be. He's somewhere between 80 and 90 years of age. So he's, he's a man who's seen a lot. That's what I want you to understand. The author of this letter is startled by what he sees. And remember, he'd seen Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd seen Jesus walk on water. He'd seen Jesus feed 5,000 and then feed 4,000. He saw him cast out a demon. He saw him do some amazing things. saw him die a tragic death. And this revelation drops him to his knees and, and causes him to want to die. So there is, there is a real openness to us when we read this that we have to play the role and fit ourselves in the context. So but why was it written? Again, uh, to show God's glory and encourage his people. Why would we need encouragement? Because when John was writing the revelation, the people of God were under immense persecution. Jerusalem had collapsed in 70 AD. The church no longer had the mothership. They were all over the globe. They were being persecuted for their faith. It was, it was common for every government to blame the Christians for what was going wrong, which is a bit ironic in our day and age, isn't it? And so this letter ha- has a timeliness to it that there is some, some imagery we'll talk about in just a few moments. All right, so we're gonna, you see the outline there. There are the cyclical 
visions. There's bowls, there's seals, not the animal, but seals on a, on a letter that was broken. It was very common in those days when you sent a legal letter that you would seal it with wax and the king would put his signet ring on it and anybody who opened that and broke that seal without being the recipient of that letter could be punished by death. That's why in the book of Revelation when it says the seal was broken. There's even one moment that John and all of the, the elders are weeping because there's no one worthy to break the seal of the envelope and then the lamb walks forward. And we've seen that image before, right? When John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God. And the lamb comes forward and breaks open the seals and the letter the information that's been held for all time is now revealed to us in jesus there's just beautiful imagery uh, present here so off we go what's special in the first three chapters of the book of revelation number one is the appearance of the risen jesus there are glimpses of this powerful jesus in the gospels but in the Revelation, John knows who he is and he's scared to death of him. It's, it's a vision. His hair is white. His voice is really interestingly described. His voice is like rushing waters, which is really fascinating to me. Uh, when Heather and I got married, like a thousand years ago, when we got married, we went to uh, Toronto for our honeymoon. We were in Michigan. It was a beautiful trip into to Canada. We'd never been. Everyone told us Toronto was a wonderful city, and it absolutely was. And then Heather, because she's awesome, looked at her husband and said, we're not too far from the Baseball Hall of Fame, are we? And I was like, well, no, we're not. And she said, well, let's go. And I said, I want to marry you. If we hadn't already been married, I would have married her again. And we drove, but to get there, we had to go through Buffalo, New York to get to Cooperstown. So we went over Buffalo where the Niagara Falls are located and we stopped there. You didn't care about the Baseball Hall of Fame, but standing at the Niagara Falls watching the volume of water going over, I said something very incredibly smart and witty to my wife and she just stood there. And I thought, well, she's really, I'm not gonna interrupt her. So finally I said, hey, do you, you wanna walk over here to this other part? And she just stood there. And I realized I could have screamed an inch from her ear, she could not hear a single word I was saying. I had a hard time hearing myself. The rushing water over that was so mesmerizing and so powerful. It, it had a sense of eminence to it. And John says when he sees Jesus, his voice sounds like rushing water. Not a babbling brook. Not a calm little creek you sit by and read a book or eat a sandwich and have a picnic. We're talking about the thunderous pouring of water. Now, which is kind of interesting because Jesus said he's a spring of living water, Right? There's so much connection when you read Revelation. Don't be afraid to read it slowly and go back and say, that makes me think of something in the Gospels. What was it? Because when John sees the full-blown glorified Jesus, the Bible says he falls on his face and he's fearful. And Jesus says these interesting words to him, which you hear throughout the entire Bible. Does anybody know what those words are? Don't be afraid. Well, why do you tell someone not to be afraid? Because they have a reason to be. No one chooses to wake up today going, I'm just going to have a scared day. Now, my wife will tell you, someday she wakes up and she wants to cry. I've never awakened a day in my life and thought, you know, I just need to cry today. I just need to have a good cry. I'll look over at her and she'll have tears running there. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you sure? Everything's all right? Yeah. Sometimes I just want to cry. And I think, never a day in my life. It just doesn't happen. So we have this power, this fear, don't be afraid, and Jesus reaches down and stands John up. He says, John, I want you to write down what I'm going to show you. 
And yet there's a real fascinating part, and I can't wait to get to heaven or Jesus to come back and build heaven, whatever it's going to be, because there's a moment where Jesus says to John, don't write this. That's unfair, isn't it? John saw something, and Jesus said, don't, don't write that down. And John didn't write it down. So there's power. We're comfortable with Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but when John, who spent three years with him, saw him in his glorified state, the fear of the Lord was not an option. So I, what I'm trying to get you to understand here is you can read it and go, okay, what's next, what's next, and miss the most important parts. The Jesus that comes back with a, a name tattooed on his thigh, riding on a white horse, I don't really think it'll be a horse, but how could you explain a motorcycle to someone in Jesus' day? <laughs> so be careful with the imagery, right? There's, there's an animal, it's got four heads, one's a hawk and one's a bear and one's a lion. Uh, how would you describe an Apache helicopter? You wouldn't. So he's using imagery from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel. All right, you with me? Now I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but I want you to, here's what I want you to think right now. I want you to be at a position where you go, I don't think I really know what's in Revelation because then you're teachable. But if you're coming in here going, well, I'm premillennial and I believe this and this and this, well, then we just need to go get coffee because we're not really going to look at what Revelation says. We're going to look at what we want it to say. Because truthfully, if you'd say, what's your millennial position? I don't spend any much time on that. Because there's too many people who don't know who Christ is to worry about, you know, as one preacher said, and I love it, it's a cop-out, but it's true. He said, I'm not on the programming committee, I'm on the welcoming committee. We'll let God figure out how he's going to do it. All we need to do is be ready when he arrives. Loving him and talking about his goodness. All right, so the appearance of the risen Jesus. Second, Revelation 119, past, present, and future. And Revelation 1.19 says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So this is a revelation that it continues to have effect on all of us. So what you've seen is the vision of Christ. What is going on now is the seven churches of Asia, chapters 2 and 3. And what's going to happen is how God is going to bring this all into fruition. And when it's going to get rough, what do we do when it gets rough? And what do we do when it gets really good? And what do we do when the new kingdom's established? All right? Third is the letter to the seven churches. This takes place in chapters 2 and 3. And these churches are warned that hard times are coming. We've talked about this enough, hopefully, since last October with the... um, the series on worldview, corrective lenses. We've talked over and over and over. In fact, it, all, it started last summer. We started in the first Peter. You'll notice that every sermon series we've done, unintentional, has had a suffering element to it. That there will be suffering, there will be suffering, there will be suffering. Because research has indicated the reason most people leave Christianity is because they suffer. As if they've been promised that once you come to Jesus, everything is going to be smooth sailing and it's all going to be ice cream and fudge and just... You know, you're going to have a great life, and that's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Jesus prayed on the night he was betrayed that when we suffered, we would not become disunified. And second of all, we would not become like the world. So the tribulation. For many of us, and and including myself, I've lived in a period of my life as a Christian where I thought the tribulation was really about this thousand-year thing. When, in, in fact, there's tribulation every day. Stand up and say you believe that there's one way, that you believe there's a pure right and wrong, 
and someone is going to attempt to stop you and punish you for that. And it can even be within the church. So let's not just cast this off as the evil one. Sometimes tribulation can happen with even in the body of Christ. Read 1 Corinthians again. Read uh, 1 Thessalonians. Read the letters to Timothy. So when we talk about this, we're talking about John is looking at the cycles of how evil tries to keep the light from going in and penetrating darkness. So he wrote letters to seven churches. Now, boy, I'm going to say something, and I'm starting to question myself up. So I'm going to generalize. Someone once told me that none of the, there are no Christian churches existing in the regions where the seven churches of Asia are mentioned. That's kind of disheartening, isn't it? That there was a moment. But, and let's, let me give you a real happy thought, okay, in our closing night of studying through this. If you look historically where some of the largest churches have existed 30 years later, most of them don't exist in those locations anymore. In our brotherhood, if you're from the independent Christian churches where this church was birthed from, um, the, one of our biggest churches was in Canton, Ohio. Kenny was, did you grow up anywhere near Canton? Yeah, Canton had a, P.H. Welshimer was the preacher there. And it was the first church maybe in the United States that ran over a thousand. And it was like the beacon of our brotherhood. The church in Canton now runs under 200. Why? Because they did bad things? No, because people move. Cities move. Inner, the big inner cities, like where Dale Moody preached in Chicago, there's no one living in those neighborhoods anymore. So the people go to the suburbs, and then you go to Barrington, and you have Willow Creek, and you can see just migration of people. So when you hear that maybe none of the seven churches of Asia still exist, I don't want you to think because they failed. As population grows, who would have thought when this church was built on unused farmland or unusable farmland, some 60 or 50 years ago that Webb City would run out of space and start creeping toward Orinoco. Nobody. And yet, look, sometimes God just has you positioned at an intersection where he brings people for a season. But what's taught to those seven churches is, is crucial for all of us to understand. There are churches that get attaboys. There's churches that get no attaboys. Of these seven churches, and the number seven matters in the New Testament, it's a perfect number. It represents God's perfection. Seven days he created the world. And so when you look at numerology and the study of numbers, this, these matter. These churches were challenged to do what God's called them to do. Some of them were rich, some of them were poor. Some of them were faithful, some of them were not. Some of them loved God dearly, and some of them had lost their first love. Which really is the journey of most churches, isn't it? It's, you can be in your heyday. There is no guarantee 20 years from now there will be a Christ Church of Orinoco. And the reason I like to promote that concept is not because I'm going to be the guy who ruins it. But what happens if this location isn't here anymore? What happens if for a season in time, for a 70-year run, Christ Church of Orinoco was to be here, but God has different plans and he disperses us all over the area? Isn't that still okay? If we take care of the opportunities we have right now, then 10 or 20 years, if this is really Christ's church, he can move us wherever he wants to move us. He can do whatever he wants to do with us. I'm really more confident about that now in my 50s than I ever was in my 20s. Because I thought if something happened to where I'd spent 20 years, what a waste. No one would remember me. And I realized, you're not going to remember me anyway. And if I spend my time trying to be important, I'll miss the opportunity to be useful. So, the early churches. Did they do what the Lord asked them to do? If they were faithful in their moment, 
then they spread seed throughout the world. All right, let's jump to chapters 4 through 19, which is the heart of the visions. So, what's special about that? Um, okay, number one is a cop-out. Many of you will find it that way, but we have to be honest. It's often difficult to know just what John is describing. Okay. Is that an issue? Is that a problem? He's using apocalyptic language. It is trying to describe something that he had never seen in his life. It is when you say, well, it was kind of like this. Uh, I remember the first time we went on a roller coaster. Braden was like six, very adventurous. And I was like, you can go with me, buddy. And he's like, you want to go? And I said, yeah. And he said, what's it going to be like? How do you describe a roller coaster to a six-year-old? I mean, just, just do it. When I taught speech classes, I'd often have the students come up, and I'd pick the most confident young man in the room, and I'd have him come up here, and I'd tell the entire class to turn their chairs around and face the back wall. I could do it for one of you right now. And I would ask you to come up here, and with everyone's back turned to you, I would ask everyone to take off one of their shoes and put it in front of them and untie it, and then, by pure description alone, I would ask the presenter to tell you how to tie your shoes. And you can't see. And you have to act like you've never done it before. And when you have to s describe how to tie something that you do thoughtlessly every day. Now, some of us are so lazy, they're called loafers for a reason, right? <laughs> like, I don't think I've tied a shoe forever. But I buy shoes at I'm low maintenance. But when I had to sit there and the student's like, okay, we'll take them and cross them. And I said to the students, you're only allowed to do exactly what he tells you to do. You would see the class get frustrated. They're like, cross them, what does that mean? How are, you, how are we to read the book except to understand that John is using language that's to create a tension with the audience. It's not to keep us ignorant, but he's not giving us every detail. Like you have a lamb, and then you have a man in a bloody gown, and you have another guy in a pure white gown. Can you see this is, is different? But what are we supposed to perceive from it? Is that this language is to startle us to say that these things we've never seen before and yet Jesus still remains faithful and true. So it's meant to provoke us a little bit. How many of us have had dreams that we never had those thoughts in our head ever before and in a dream we have them? And, you, and someone, you wake up and you're like, what's the matter? And, and you know, your spouse says, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, well, I had a dream. Well, tell me about it. And you're like, I got nothing. I saw things, I felt things, I was weirded out, I sweated, and I woke up. And you want me to explain it to you? I just want to go back to bed. And John had one of those moments. It was very hard for him to describe it. So, if we don't understand all of the visions, we need to listen to the words that are spoken to John about what he saw. That's as important as trying to figure out what it means when you have a beast with four heads, and one of them's human and eyes all around and seven heads with 12 crowns and you're like, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. If you got seven heads with 12 crowns, who didn't get an extra crown? This is what I think. You can tell who came from a family of four boys, right? Where everything had to be equal. No, so second. The terrible judgments of history's end do not bring repentance. Found in Revelation six fifteen through 17. Which is really an interesting part of this. So knowing that a great day of judgment is coming does not always cause us to stop misbehaving, does it? How many of us as children knew mom and dad was coming home in a little bit, but since they weren't there, we did what we wanted? 
taking the risk they wouldn't find out, right? How many of us have realized, I just had a conversation with a buddy of mine, he's, he, <laughs> he said to me, I gotta lose 30 pounds. And, I'm, and I was like, yeah, that's a good start. And uh, he, I said, why? And he goes, well, class reunion's coming up. And I said, when's your class reunion? 20th class reunion, he wants to lose 30 pounds. So when's your class reunion? He said, June 1st. I <laughs> You're starting now? You didn't know about this. You didn't realize when you graduated 20 years ago you're going to have a reunion? He goes, I can't go looking like this. You did nothing knowing this was coming to keep you from looking like this. And he just kind of shook me and goes, you're a good friend. I'm being honest with you. You can't drop the weight you want to do six weeks out. And he just kind of stared at me. And I'm thinking, that's me spiritually. I know that God is going to give, make me give an accounting for every word I say every action I perform, for the way I treat people when they drive, for the way I treat them at Walmart, for the way I treat them at restaurants, all of that's going to play out. I know I'm going to answer to that. But without that awareness and without a serious respect for God in that, how many of us let that information keep us from sinning? Not me. And then sometimes it's like, oh, I got to lose 30 spiritual pounds in an hour. And it doesn't work any better than my buddies. He called me today and told me he put on two pounds after I talked to him. <laughs> My gift of encouragement's paying off. <laughs> I said, what'd you go do? He said, I don't want Taco Bell. I said, oh, awesome. You're not going to the uh, reunion either. All right, so they don't bring repentance. This is what John sees, is that when the wrath of God or the judgment of God or the holiness of God is presented, the world rebels with anger. It's, it's being told. I've told a bunch of Braden stories, but Alex is a very mild-mannered, calm, steady kid. You never know if he's happy or hateful. He just runs that road nice and smooth, very self-contained. When he was about three, he was reaching for something on the table, and we told him two or three times not to. This is the only discipline I've ever had to give him. And I reached over, and I, he was three years old, clear as a bell. I reached over, and I slapped his little hand just on the back on that meaty part. I smacked it, and I said, don't touch and that little guy walked over, took my hand, smacked me back, and said, don't hit me. I'm like, wow. And Heather started giggling across the room, and next thing you know, she's whisking him to safety. I wasn't angry. I was kind of impressed. I thought, at three, he just pointed his little chubby hand at me. Don't hit me. And I said, don't disobey. Do exactly what I asked you to do. And he, he never went after that thing again. But I thought it was kind of funny. He never, he never measured at all. Now, I'm thinking, if I walked up and smacked Dale Christian's hand, You'd have a different preacher, and there'd be no Alex Braden, and Heather would marry somebody with class. They would have all changed. But it was just kind of fascinating to him that he didn't have any sense of that fear. But he, ne he never went back to it either once he understood the reality of it. Notice the anger, though. When you read the book of Revelation, that when Jesus says, this is the way it needs to be, what does the world do? Instead of stopping and measuring whether it's worth the risk, it just becomes more rebellious. Isn't that what the, the Jews did to Jesus? They didn't like what he was teaching because it didn't give them power anymore. It took away their power. So what was their conclusion? Kill him. He's in our way. And this is what Revelation is trying to tell us. The world is not going to fall on its knees before God because the more God acts like God, the more they act like Pharaoh. Now, when you read your Old Testament, what does it say that God did to Pharaoh's heart? He hardened it. And some of us struggle with that, right? Because we think, well, is that God playing unfairly? He causes uh, Pharaoh to fight against him? When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that doesn't mean that God turned him into a robot and made him rebel. It meant that when God got up in Pharaoh's existence, Pharaoh got stiff. 
Jesus called them stiff-necked. They refused to bow. Now, some people in the presence of God fall on their knees and cry out, Father, and some people stand up and raise a fist. What Revelation shows us is that the more the world gains an understanding of who God is, they do one of two things. They either repent or rebel. The book of Revelation says there's more rebellion than repentance. Now, the shame of it is that should never happen in the church, but you see it all the time. People want to live on the edge in the shadows, and the minute they're confronted by someone who they say is their family, the church family, will instantly turn their back and walk out. Just transfer to another church. Just run away. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. So Revelation is still relevant. Number three, the 144,000 people sealed from the tribes of Israel. Now, numbers are symbolic. Okay? They're symbolic, not representative. I don't know how you could imagine that there's only going to be 144,000 people saved on the final day because there are more believers living today that are serving the Lord right now fully. And you take all of time, and how can you do that? It's a symbolic number. So what does 144,000 mean? It's pretty simple. The number 12, just help me with this tonight. When you think of the number 12 in the Bible, what do you think of? 12 tribes of, of Israel, 12 disciples. Isn't that interesting? That Abraham's family of faith delivered 12 tribes that God would build his entire kingdom out of, and the new Jerusalem or the new Israel would be formed from the 12 disciples who would plant the church. So if you take 12 times 12, what do you get? 144 times 1,000. Do you think those numbers might be telling us something? You have the promise of the Old Testament, the promise of the New Testament. You take that times a thousand, and we look at that and we go, it's an interesting point being made. That the work of Abraham's faith and the work of the early church is going to exponentially multiply over time. 144,000 will be pretty interesting. Now, even when we go, and I'm going to jump ahead now, if you go to the end of the book of Revelation and you get into the measurement of the kingdom, it's so many miles or meters or however they measured it. It's so many miles wide and so many miles this way. And what's funny is I think someone calculated that it would be that the city of Jerusalem mentioned in the book of Revelation would end up being, I think they said, the 56th largest city in America. So is it an exact representation or is it simply saying it was so much bigger than the Jerusalem they were used to? But some people will literally read every measurement, and I'm not belittling them, but you have a hard time being consistent if you want to take everything in the book of Revelation as literal. I think there are some literal things, and there's some very figurative things, so we have to be careful. The 144 people sealed meant that the promise of covenant made to Abraham is still working. That those who are the people of, of God that that promise made to Abraham by faith, promise made to, Ab or to Adam and Eve in the garden, that, this, that the one will come and crush the head of the serpent, even though bitten, that all of that is still playing out. Now, I want to be real careful because I want to pay respect, and again, I don't want to talk to people who aren't in the room, but some of you get visited every now and then by people who would like to tell you that there are only 144,000 people who are ever going to be saved, but they've even had to amend that. They'll also then teach that there, there's a second heaven because God must have miscalculated. Well, they don't say that. But the Bible doesn't say anything about a second heaven for those overflow. 
And wouldn't that kind of stink? You show up to heaven and God's like, oh yeah, you were born too late. You get to go down to the basement with the kids. You get to sit at the card table and there's no sweet potatoes. And then you're like, dang it, Thanksgiving all over again. 144,000 is representative of how God is keeping his covenant promises. But uh, again, if you take a literal approach to that, you've got a lot of explaining to do because it's not going to match up. Number four, praise for God and Christ in heaven. Um, some of the most beautiful parts of the book of Revelation or the message of Revelation is that um, there's no turmoil in heaven. In the presence of God, there's not panic. The angels aren't wondering if the old man's lost it. See, this isn't up in heaven going, man, I'd have done it different. That really hurt. What would John want to see Jesus like having last seen him crucified, raised, and ascended? Okay? How would you, how would you imagine John would want to see Jesus? Sitting around heaven going, oh, my side, my hands, oh, my head. No, he sees Jesus. He's, he's boss. Jesus is owning the room. He's strong. He's vibrant. He's powerful. When he speaks, the angels go off. That's what John wants to see, and that's what John gets to see, and that's what you and I need to see. The meek and mild Jesus here was meek and mild so he could be crucified, but he's all-powerful, and when he comes back, he's going to take names. And we need to hold on to that because the image throughout is when, when John sees Jesus, he's like, whoa, he's the man, the glorified. He saw him transfigured, remember? On the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw him glorified, but he didn't understand it. Now he sees him in heaven, he's like, whoa. He, he is it. There's certain things in heaven that don't happen if Jesus doesn't make them happen. But God's not sitting around, and they're going, well, what was it? What's that? No, he's like, no, I got it. And even the martyrs, there's a passage in the book of Revelation where the martyrs, those who died for the cause of Christ, are sitting at the foot of the throne, which is interesting because those who aren't martyred stand at a distance. But those who pour their blood out to honor the king are right up on, on him. And the Bible says that they're asking God daily, how much longer? How much longer? And I don't think they're asking it judgmentally. I think they're asking it like a five-year-old in the back of the car on the way to their favorite place. And Brayden measures that all the time. If I say we're going to the dentist, he's ah. If I say we're going to Cheddar's, he's like, okay, when are we leaving? Because he's already in the car, just wanting to get there. I say, hey, we're going to go see Grandma and Grandpa. When are we going to leave, and how long is it going to take us to get there? And, you know, when he was younger, it's like three movies, okay? Watch three movies in the car, and then we'll be happy. But I think that the martyrs are hanging there going, God, you made promises, and there are people still dying there, and when is this all going to come to fruition? About three weeks ago, I said something here, and I got a really interesting email from someone who doesn't go to our church, but they've been listening to this Wednesday night thing, which scares the fire out of me, because I say so many stupid things. And there are people across the country going, that guy's an idiot. But he he's wrote me something. I made comment, I think it was three or four weeks ago. I said, I wonder how old we'll be. Like, I, I've always wondered, when I see my grandpa in heaven, will he be the 92-year-old grandpa, the 65-year-old grandpa, the 30-year-old grandpa? What's he going to be? And this guy wrote me, and he said, I think I have your answer. He, he said, Jesus said, no one enters heaven who's not like a child. I was... So I emailed him back, and I said, what are you saying? He said, I think your grandpa's going to be 10 or 11. That would be awesome. I love being 10. It was the greatest time of my life. I'm looking forward to being a 10. You're not. I will be annoying at 10 years old in heaven. You'll go, my goodness, what a jerk. But anyway, we're going to have a good time. 
But I thought, isn't it, Jesus said that twice. Now, maybe that's not a literal understanding, but I'm intrigued by it. Wouldn't it be fun to be a kid, have all your tendons, hair, small things be left behind in our past? Yeah, all right. You won't recognize me with hair. That'd be awesome. Okay. Number five. The end of the Antichrist, and I'm going to give you three things here. His religious, economic, and political empire. Religious, economic, and political empire. We talked about the concept of Antichrist last week. Let's see if we have any retention. What did I point out about the Antichrist that I wanted you guys to remember? It's plural. It's never the Antichrist. When you see that term used in the New Testament, I've yet to find any moment where the article the is placed in front of it, signifying one. It says Antichrist. There is a spirit of that in every generation. Now, represented in Revelation is the totality of the work of the Antichrist. And it has a religious... Remember, Satan does not do different things than God. He counterfeits God's things. Satan has no originality. He has no creative ability. He's not equal to God at any level. There are people that sometimes apply omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. They say that Satan is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere. That is not true. Satan is a spirit, yes. He is not all-knowing. Okay? He doesn't know your every thought. Some of us make it easier for him. All right, Satan doesn't have to know. He, he's got three basic bullets, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He fires those at us, and some of us just willingly stand in front of him, and he figures us out. There could be temptations going on around you right now that you have no interest in, and you're not tempted by them because you don't even notice them. And then every now and then something will trigger you, and you'll go, hmm, and they found your attention. But we cannot attribute to Satan omnipotence. He's not all-powerful. He's not God's equal. He's nowhere close to being God's equal. So when you have to choose between the temptations of one who promises you lies and the covenant promises of a God who promises you only love and fulfills that, sometimes sin is a logical choice, not just a physical one. We have to say, who do I trust the most? Now, my father, because he was very strict on, if he said he's going to pick you up, my dad used to do the funniest thing. He would take us to movies and sleep in the car. Now, I realize how hard he worked. It's probably the only quiet he got. He had four boys. But he would take us to a movie, and he'd say, what time is it out? And we'd say 9.20, and he'd say, I'll be out in the parking lot. We'd come out of the parking lot, and I could still picture my dad in the car, seat laid back, mouth wide open, snoring to beat the band with the Chicago White Sox game on the radio. And we'd get in the car, and he'd just sit up and push the seat back up and turn the game off and ask us about the movie and drive everybody home. When my father said this to me, I'll be at your game, my dad was at my game. If my dad said, I'll pick you up after practice, my dad would pick me up after practice. For my entire lifetime, my dad has never not kept his word, but my dad seldom gave his word. Hey, Dad, can you be at the game? I'm not sure yet. If I can get some overtime, I'm going to take it. Or, Dad, can you come to this? I don't think I can. He had no problem disappointing me because he didn't want to disappoint me. Does that make sense? So he'd tell me right up front, I can't do that because he didn't want to say he could not show up. So when my dad gave me his word that he'd be somewhere, my friend's like, is dad going to be here? Don't worry, Dale will show up. Because my entire life he's been faithful. When we face temptations and God says don't do that, 
God never says don't do that because he doesn't want you to have a good time. God says don't do that because it'll kill you. Satan says go ahead, it won't hurt you at all. And what's his intention? To kill you, excuse me. <coughs> I don't know how to cough into a mic. Sorry, Brad. I'm going to pass out up here. All right, so there's a religious counterfeit, an economic counterfeit, and a political counterfeit. What do those three things mean to us? Well, religious is about a holiness. Satan never says, don't worship God. He says, did God really mean what he said? Okay, Satan's not going to come after. Temptations don't say there is no God. Temptations say, well, you know, God doesn't really love you, or God hates you, or, or God loves you so much you can do whatever you want, and he's just going to say it's all right. And then there's an economic one. Well, what does economics mean? Biblically, it's about justice. In Satan's economy, the world's economy, let's take Satan out of it, in the world view of economy, those who have, have, and those who don't, eh, your fault. What does the Old Testament teach us about our wealth? Our wealth is to be used to help everybody, especially the poor, the neglected, and the downcast. Does the world's economy offer us that? Or do they simply say, you can do some benevolent acts, but it, you've earned it, it's yours. And then political, the, anytime you, you see the concept of politics in the Bible, it's about power. It's about oppression. I was re read a recent article, and I don't know that I agree with it, but I thought it was interesting anyway. The whole, uh, it was put up by the Gospel Coalition, and they had a question about whether or not Christians should run for political office. I'd never really thought about that much. But they made a pretty compelling case. I'm not sure I agree with all of it, so don't think I'm trying to lead you that direction. But they said it'd be really hard for someone of faith to serve in politics today. Now, I know a lot of you say that how can we help fix politics and everything else? I'm not sure it can be fixed. I know we have duty and responsibility. I'm not saying we don't. I'm not throwing my hands up and saying there's no way it can be saved. But I don't know how a Christian could serve in an environment where gaining power and controlling people by power is the means of accomplishing something. I'd love to have... Uh, I pray every morning. I'll be honest with you. I'm this naive. I pray every morning that there would be a, a repentance that breaks out in our judges and in our legislature. I just pray that somebody wakes up one day and says, this isn't right. And they start speaking that and God gets to work through it. I'm, am I hopeful? I'm not hopeful we'll do it. I'm very hopeful God can do it if he chooses. But Satan counterfeits politics, religion, and finances to keep people in submission, to keep people controlled. Uh, my grandfather was raised in a different age. I remember having to tell him I got a credit card. You would have thought, if I'd have come home and said, you know, I'm communist, he'd accepted that easier. And I said, Grandpa, I have to get, I have to get uh, credit. I can't, I'm, I was about to get married. I couldn't even buy Heather a ring. I, so my dad took me a credit card. And he took $500 cash out and he kept it. And he said, you need to pay the back this card X amount per month for six months to establish credit. And at the end of that, I paid it off. I think, it, which is funny, I think it cost me $21 to establish credit over six months. And when I paid it off, my dad gave me back the original $500. And I had credit established in my name, but I had to tell my grandpa I had a credit card. My grandfather lived his entire life. He bought every house with cash, every car with cash. He did everything by cash. One time, <laughs> tell you how ornery he was, my, he came home. I, he worked on the road in construction. He was a mason, a, a brick foreman. 
and he helped build dams in Steubenville, Ohio. He did some amazing things. Like, he built Notre Dame Stadium. He was a chief uh, brick foreman to build Notre Dame Stadium in 1929. He came home one time, and my grandmother had groceries in the house, and he said to her, where'd you get those? And she said, well, they allowed me to charge things on credit that we can pay off at the end of the month. He made her package everything up and take it back to the store. You know where I get it from now, don't you? And I was like, and she did it? And my mom's like, oh, yeah, yeah, back... She, he, she was told to do it, and she went and did it. And then he took her back to the store, and they paid for cash for everything. So when I told him that I'd bought a credit card, here's what he said. You're playing with the devil's money. And to this day, I, I kind of look at him, he was right. Because none of us are ever told we can't have anything. If we want it right now, then we'll, when will we pay for it? We have to be real careful. Because we're not to enter into slavery for anything. And when we're buying things without money, we're promising to be enslaved to the holder of that card until it's paid off. And I wish, I wish I didn't have the stories that I could bore you to death with about people. And some of us are in the room, and I don't want to make you drown right now, but you're underwater and you're scared. Uh, we need to be real careful about how we buy into the world's economy. Because you can have it now, but it'll cost you. Not just money. You're enslaved. You, know, you can't take a missions trip an opportunity would come up and we all say, well, I got to work. Why do you got to work? Because you're, you're spending July's money in, in April. Instead of having the freedom to say, if I saved a little bit, I could take six months off and go see the world and minister to people and do missions. But I can't because I'm locked in to slavery. That's what Satan does. Book of Revelation calls it Babylon. If you want to have some fun, go back and read the book of Daniel and understand what Babylon is. Babylon represents, it's not the nation, it represents the power that God, now listen, Babylon was commissioned by God to punish the nation of Israel for being punks, for breaking the covenant. So God said, I'm going to raise up this nation, this nation is going to come in and it's going to punish you for a period of 70 years, and it did. So when people of John's day read the term Babylon in, in the Revelation, they understood what it was talking about. It was a power that was going to punish God's people. And so, uh, in fact, I, there even is used the term as Babylon's a harlot. And people willingly got in bed with her. So the imagery doesn't need explained. Just talks about what happens when we try to be as much like the world and use the things of the world to accomplish the things of God. Jesus said, be shrewd. Don't be sold into slavery. So that's chapter 17. And then you get in chapter 19. The age ends with the return of Christ in triumph. Now, I've done this on some Sunday mornings and I've had some people raise their eyebrows. I'm not trying to be right here. I just, I love Revelation for this point. My big awakening moment as a believer happened in 1979 when the American hostages were taken by Iran. Or, yeah, by Iran. And I remember the Shah, or Ayatollah Khomeini and the Shah of, I remember all of that. And I'm trying to think, I was 14 years old. I was scared. And I couldn't tell my mom and dad about it. I was scared. So I did what every 14-year-old ought to do. I went down to my bedroom and read Revelation and could have told you at 14 years of age that Russia, Iran, and America were the three forces and they were going to battle and it was going to be the Battle of Armageddon and there would be destruction and we'd all be living like the movie Soylent Green and we'd all be eating each other and I just lived in paranoia for three months. It caused me to pray because I couldn't do anything to stop it. It caused me to wonder, did 
that I really love God enough. If I died that moment, I had all the panic a junior high kid would have. And I just remember I was like an eighth grader going into ninth grade and I was freaked out. And I envisioned all of this stuff that wasn't biblical. So I'm very passionate about this point. When you get to the 19th chapter, I want you to hear this clearly. I defy you to find the battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. Now it does say that Satan and his forces, the Antichrist and forces, gather against Jesus. But the Bible also says when Jesus returns, there's no battle. Immediately. Remember when Jesus would see someone demon-possessed? What did he have to do to cast out the demon? Tell it to leave. Did he ever have to like concoct a potion, sacrifice a goat? No, he just said, get out. And what, did the, what did it do? It got out. Why do you think at the end of all time that the Antichrist is going to stand up to Jesus and give him a fight? You can read Hal Lindsey's book all you want. It's not biblical. It's not. You can't find it in here. If I gave you the book of Revelation and tell me what's going to happen in the last battle, most of us would conclude this. Jesus wins without much of an effort. Jesus doesn't come from heaven all weak and wimpy and have to muscle up. He comes down, and if you read it, he's He-Man. And he, walk, he comes down, he's taking names. Now, you're not as happy about that as I want you to be right now. You're all like, okay, reasonable. No, I don't want to be reasonable. Let your tails wag a little bit. We have a God who's going to kick butt. Even though he let them kill him, he owned the moment. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, and it seems like Babylon is getting bigger and stronger, it is. But Babylon, Rome, Germany, go down the list. What great Babylon has ever been able to sustain its power, including America? None. We think because America is 200 plus years old, we really got this thing owned. Rome was in power for 600 years and fell flat on its face when it lost its moral underpinnings. So if that scares you, and I try to do this on purpose, when I start picking at the foundations of America and people are like, well, wait, wait, what's wrong with you? Read history. What killed Rome will kill America if we don't figure it out. But what's the good news? What should make your tail wag? When Jesus comes back, everything will be made right. It just may not be made right in our duration of our lifetime. But I don't want you to picture this great battle where Jesus is struggling and he gets off a lucky shot. Oh my gosh, no. He's going to return and Satan is going to go in a hole. And Jesus is going to reign forever. That's what Revelation tells me. I can't see it any other way, not because I don't want to, but I was so grateful to go to Bible college still scared and to have a professor sit me down one day for lunch and say, I'm going to tell you the three things about Revelation you need to understand. Number one, it will get scary. Number two, you can sustain your faith no matter what happens. And number three, Jesus will reward you for that. Or as one person said, he said, I love it, he said, um, there's three things about Revelation. You have to pick a side, the world or Jesus. Second thing is, Jesus' side will win. Third thing, don't be stupid. Those are the three principles Randy Harris says about the book of Revelation, and I agree with him. But being on Jesus' side doesn't simply mean you made a decision in your life. It means you're faithful. When Babylon sparks and shows its power, those that trust in Christ will not bow their knee. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you noticed in the book of Daniel? Daniel was told to bow, or to not bow, and he bowed. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow, and they didn't. Daniel, you can't pray. I'm going to pray. Boys, you're going to bow to the idol. I'm not bowing to the idol. And King Nebuchadnezzar said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, why won't you bow? And he said, listen, O king, we'll not bow to you. And even if our God lets us go in the fiery furnace and die, we're still not going to bow. I think that's the heartbeat of what we're supposed to walk through Revelation with. So let's get to the cool conclusion. Chapters 20 through 22. Revelation 21 through 6 talks about the millennial reign Once again, is it, is it an exact thousand years? I went to a Bible college where three of the Old Testament professors disagreed vehemently on this. So I, I got a great education. I was told by all of them why the others were wrong. So I don't know what I believe, but I know how to shoot a hole in most of the other theories. So what is a thousand year reign? What does a thousand years mean in Scripture? It's a powerful period of time, it's sustained, it's long. It's eternal, if you will. So what it's talking about is when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, his kingdom will not fall again. It's here. It's here. It's as, as great as David's kingdom was passed off to Solomon. This one's greater. Will last a thousand years. Revelation 20, 7 through 10, Satan's doom. I want to read that Revelation 20, verse 10 that's in your notes. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.10. There's a lot of debate right now about whether hell's going to be forever. Could a loving God send people to an eternal, never-ending punishment? Uh, there's a lot of really interesting things being written about that right now. Um, when I read the book of Revelation, I have to ask myself, do I believe this is literal, that hell is forever and ever and ever, or do I believe it's a separation from God and termination? There's a thousand options. I don't, I don't know that I want to conclude anything right now. But what is John going to understand when in the Revelation he sees Satan being cast into a hold to never come out again? What is he to take with that? We can argue, what does a thousand years mean? And what does that pit mean? And is everyone going to go in there? And are they going to burn for eternity? And all? We may be missing the greater point. What's the greater point? Satan will do exactly what Jesus tells him to do. No more rebellion. The angel who fell from the heavens for his rebellion toward God will be silenced forever. Which means heaven, oh, this is beautiful. Heaven will be without darkness. There'll be... I don't know if there'll be no temptations to sin. I don't think there will be. I, I think we're going to be free and clear, and we're going to see filth for what it is. We're going to see temporary satisfaction for what it is. We're not going to desire those things anymore. We're not going to be looking for the, the cheap buzz. We're going to be looking for the thing that lasts forever. It's going to be perfect. Now, tails wagging yet? When he goes away, then everything that's darkness goes with him. And to me, to me, that's the hope. That's what John... Now remember, someone remind me, where's John when he's writing this? Or when he has the vision, he's recording it? He's imprisoned by Rome. What are they going to do to him? They're going to kill him. You think this is a good word for John? He may not live to see it, but he knows when Jesus comes back, all this is going to be set right. Third, God's final judgment of the lost. Verse 
Okay, there are two books you'll see here in your notes. There are two books mentioned in Revelation. There's the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life. Are they different? I, I used to think they were one and the same until I was instructed that it's very possible that the Book of Life could be where every deed that we've ever done is written down. Yikes. And the Lamb's Book of Life has been washed in the blood and all those deeds are what Jesus did. I like that. I don't think I want to go to see the movie on the Book of Life. I do want to see the Lamb's Book of Life. So that one's okay. I'm not going to read the other one. I've lived it. But if those two are distinct books, it's pretty powerful. Now, what is what is that to mean to us and to John? Well, it depends on your understanding of grace. If you're if you lean toward the legal side, you're fearful that of all the horrible things you've done that there are going to be so many that God's going to read that book and go, oh, I can't save you. And you've misunderstood grace and what Jesus did on the cross. But it also seems to teach me that there's no inconsequential moment in my life. Everything matters. Every moment has a, a powerful eternal significance one way or the other. Which goes back to the, we're not here to be important, we're here to be useful. And if every word that proceeds out of my mouth will be spoken before the throne of God, yikes. I mean, that, that just frightens me. But, but, but it makes grace more potent. That he didn't forgive me on the cross for the, some of my minor things. And I, I always like when Christians use the word mistakes for their sins. Let's not talk about mistakes. Let's talk about choices. Because that's what he died for, was the choices we made to rebel. Not stubbed your toe in the middle of the night and a word slipped out. I don't think Jesus died on the cross for that. He died for that when you said that word to someone to hurt their soul. That's what he died for. So when you read about the book of life and the Lamb's book of life, there's some significant things there. And when your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, here's the beautiful part. You didn't write it in. I want to tell you, when someone is washed by the power of God through the blood of Christ, their name is entered. They don't enter it. It's entered. So you want to know how secure that is? Now, if I go home and open the family Bible, my mom's got one of those 500-pound Bibles that's all dusty on a table in our living room. And I go home, and the boys get a kick out of opening the first three pages and reading the family tree. I've never gone home one time, opened that book, and wondered if my name's still in there. I, I'm Dale and Marilyn's boy. My name's going to be in there until they pass, and we hand the, the Bible down the line. I don't have a fear about my parents going, you no longer belong. Even if I did horrible things, my mom would still say, I gave birth to you, you're my son. Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is entered into it. And who, who entered your name? That's the one thing Revelation doesn't say, but I tend to believe it probably looked like Jesus. Finally, God's new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21 through 22. And I just put a little list here that I stole from somebody. What will heaven be like? All right, hold on to your tails because you're going to get happy. Number one, God himself will be with us. He's not going to come in and visit I remember some of my favorite nights with my dad worked multi-shifts. He worked for the airlines. Um, and so he could, he could go in and unload a plane at 2.30 in the morning or he could be there for 6 o'clock for a flight or he could work nights. So we never knew. A couple of times, I remember one time Scott and I had, uh, we had a room, we had bunk beds and my dad came in and he was wrestling around and it was back in the day before, you know, he could throw all three of us around the room. We were all wrestling and we said, Dad, how about you stay in our room tonight? And he shocked the world. Yeah. So he went in the bedroom and he grabbed a blanket and he put his pillow down on the ground he didn't stay the whole night and we knew he wasn't going to 
but it was pretty cool. There was dad camping out with his boys. That was kind of a neat night. I still think about that. I think that's a great night. And then I read this line and I think, the reason we wanted our dad to stay is because he worked such weird hours that we didn't know when we'd have him. So when we had him, we wanted to hold on to him. He, he always said all we want to do is beat up on him. Three of us climbing on him and throwing things that he'd big time wrestle with us. But when he was there, I wanted him. I love the thought of heaven is I don't have to go in a quiet room and close the door and think about God and separate myself from this world. I don't have to do any of that. He's going to be right there with us. I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's going to be fairly awesome. Because what are we, have we been missing all along is that deep abiding relationship with our creator. Second, God will wipe away every tear. Now, the interpretation of this is interesting. I've had some people tell me that they think he's going to wipe away tears because we're going to know who's not there. I hope not. If one of my sons don't make it, choose to walk away from faith, what kind of heaven would it be to see them lost? Or maybe it's just the tears from suffering, from how hard it was to stay faithful for the effort we had to pay. I'm hoping it's that. I'm giving you the, con the, the differing concepts because I don't want to sway you. I, just, I want you to think about heaven. Not as a place we go to one day, but if, about the fact that we can begin to experience the best parts of heaven right now through the Holy Spirit. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Yay! Uh, occupational hazard. You know, Kenny and Paul face it so much more than any of us. Nobody ever calls Kenny and says, Hey, I'm having a great day. Just wanted to fill you in. They call our pastoral care team and they say, It's cancer or hospice or wife told me not to come home. Won't it be nice to be in a place where no one dies and no one says cancer again? No husband loses it on his wife. No kids see their parents fighting. Man, the older I get, the less I want to be here. Is, am I the only one? Where you kind of go, you know, I had a good run. If I got 50 years, I could check out. I just want to see what Braden becomes. After that, I'm pretty free to go. <laughs> but of course, he's going to keep me here until I'm 95 just to punish me for being me. Um, the glory of the Lord will provide light. There's no celestial beings in heaven. There's no stars or moon or sun. We don't need it. God's presence will be all the light we need, which is, I have no idea what that means. But it makes me happy. Nothing impure will ever enter it, which means we're all going to be changed, aren't we? My wife doesn't understand why if someone falls down in front of me, I cannot not laugh. She thinks that's the most evil part of my personality see someone wipe out and I'll just start giggling. And she goes, they're hurt. I know, but they were up and then they were down. And she, you know, when I think of impure, she's going to be so surprised. Someone's going to fall down in heaven and I'm going to sit there and go, oh, that's a shame. And she's going to wonder what happened to me. No longer will there be any curse. Oh, do you know what that means? Strawberries the size of your head. Cats that don't make me sneeze. Nobody drives like an idiot. Are you just... Think about the realities of this. I think we're going to work. I think the reason that's mentioned is we're going to garden and we're going to grow things and we're going to cook and clean and we're going to do all of that. That's, that's the good things God gave us. So don't think we're going to sit on a cloud playing a harp. The best things about heaven are we're going to get to do the things that they were doing in the Garden of Eden before there was a curse that made weeds and hard work and labor. The throne of God will be in the city and we will serve him. You know, I was, anyway, run out of time. We'll reign forever and ever. We will reign with him. Now that means every believer. God will be God and we will have responsibilities. Just like 
Adam had responsibilities and Eve before they sinned, all of us will be given responsibilities. And I think it'll be part of what we learn to do here. I think there'll be people that can sing are going to sing, going to write music. It's going to be amazing. Then last, and this is the, the part we struggle with, I think. Number five, Revelation 22, 12 and following. Jesus is coming soon. Can you really say that 2,000 years later? Even if you believe in a young earth, if you believe that the earth is six to 7,000 years of age, or you go with the, what they're teaching our kids in school that it's millions and millions and millions of years old, what is 2,000 years in light of eternity? It's not going to be very much. I remember when my dad turned 50, how we gooned him. Oh, my gosh, we were ruthless on him. You know, he'd, he'd get up, we'd all run over and help him out of the chair and everything, and he took that for about a day, then he thumped all of us. Now that I'm 50, I haven't been here that long. I just got out of school. You know, I just got out of high school. I just got out of college. I, Alex was born three days ago. Braden wasn't even here yet. Now he's here and he, we should be diapering him. And he's 10 years old. He's like, Dad, I've lived a decade. He has no idea what a decade is. But I'm like, I've lived five of them. And it doesn't seem like it's been 15 minutes. And I don't say that to be sentimental or poetic. You, you're with me, aren't you? So what's 2,000 years in Jesus' delay? Now, there are some people who think because he delayed, he's not coming. Remember, Second Thessalonians was written about that. So read that if you're wondering. But Peter, I believe, is the one who said a day is but, or a thousand years is but a day, and a day is but a thousand years. So I think God's not limited to time. God's not living in 2015. God can be present right now in 1708 and year 200 and 2094. He he sees it all happening live and in living color, if you will. But the truth is, Jesus is going to come back. And John ends the letter by saying, come Lord Jesus. Which is really cool. Here's how I'm going to close. Are you ready? I'm ready to set the hook. Where was he when he started the letter? A prisoner, knowing he was going to die, who had seen all of his friends, all the disciples are gone. He'd seen the church swell and shrink, swell and shrink, swell and shrink. And he's scared when he sees Jesus. And at the end of the letter having seen all that's going to happen, what's his conclusion? Bring it. Isn't that good? He's like, come on. I fell down and I thought I was going to die when I saw him. Now I can't wait to see him again. He's going to come in power and glory and everything wrong is going to be made right. And John's final conclusion is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Or the Greek word is Maranatha. Simple word. It's like we say amen, which means truth. He just simply said, Come bring it. I like that. So Revelation can be a really screwy book and confusing, or you can process it and ask yourself this question, what did the early church think when they read it, and what did John think when he read it? And it'll take away a lot of the crazy interpretations, I think, that are present in our generation that wants to turn everything into an allegory and everything into a symbol with hidden meaning. And it's the world we live in, but the truth is it had to make sense to the early century Christians And I think John's conclusion tells us all we need to know. John got it. Jesus wins. And no matter how scary it gets, Jesus is going to win this thing. And trust him. Because when we trust him, he delivers us. Just like he said he would. Well, let me pray. We'll be dismissed. God, thank you for Jesus, for the hope. 
God, I don't like our world, and it doesn't like me, and I don't like myself in it. I don't like the false idols I've worshipped. I don't like the things that I've done. I don't like the things that I've said. I don't, I don't like how I've given myself permission to live as if Jesus matters, but not really. And to be able to read a letter of a man who was imprisoned and knew he was going to die for his faith and his message was love, 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 love. And to see what he experienced and to hear the message he gave the churches and to see the fact that whether it's seven bowls being poured out as the wrath of God on a world that's rebelled, whether it's the destruction of Babylon and its power, whether it's the fact that the Antichrist is trying constantly to steal what belongs to you, at the end of it, we see that Jesus will come and set everything straight. And all you've asked us to do is be faithful and trust that. So as we've studied what's in the New Testament over this semester, I pray that as we open these books in the future, uh, some of our conversations may be brought to memory. Um, God, take all the worthless things I've shared and just make it all go away. Take the important things we've talked about and allow us to read your word, to understand who you are, and to celebrate how great Christ is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, we are done. Next week, in this room, the junior and senior high kids are having a worship night, and they've invited all of us to come back. So especially if you have young people in programming, we'd really encourage you, instead of just dropping them off, one more night, come in here. They're going to be doing a worship night, and they've asked us to come be here. They don't need us to be here, but I think it's nice that they asked us to be. So if you, if you want to come out on, on Wednesday night, uh, next week, feel free to. If your kids are in the other programming, that's going to continue on. Uh, so this will be a place to hang out uh, if you want to. It'll be in this room. But our class is dismissed. If you missed any nights and you want notes, please feel free to email me. I'll be happy to share whatever stuff I have with you so you can get caught up. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.